If you are turning, tuning in online um, or here and have your Bibles, turn with me to Haggai chapter 1. It's a very obscure, one of the lesser known books in the Bible because it's only two chapters and it's considered one of the minor prophets. Haggai chapter 1, but it's got a very important message and I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. Read with me. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You, eat wages, you earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. And this is God's word. The book of Haggai <clears throat> was written uh, during the time after God's people were taken away. They were exiled to a foreign land for around 70 years. They were longing to be near God, to have a sense of an experience of God, but the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed and after 70 years, they're back. And the temple, they were called to rebuild the temple because the temple lay in ruins. Now, what is the temple? The temple in Jerusalem represented access, access to God, closeness, the intimacy of God, a personal, rich, real experience with God where you learn to worship, where you learn to give, where you learn to serve, where you learn to apply all these things that you're learning and growing in. Haggai was a prophet. Haggai was a prophet that God had sent to speak to his people. Now, 
have to understand something about prophets. In ancient times, God sent prophets as prosecuting attorneys who charged God's people because either A, they dismissed uh, the law of God, or they became exploitative, they exploited the poor, or because they were oppressive to God's people. They became sinful as a culture in that way. They went against the character of God when they broke God's covenant, when they broke his law. When you enter into a covenantal relationship, and there are very, very few times in your lifetime where you enter into a covenantal relationship with someone or something, when you enter into that type of relationship, you're saying that these promises are life-binding because they are love-binding. A relationship that's designed to bring you infinite joy requires infinite responsibility, commitment. And so when you break a covenant, it's always messy. It all, it's designed to just break you apart. It's catastrophic. There are three things that we're going to learn today. One, God's charge. Two, the implications. Lastly, the promise. The charge, the implications, the promise. First, we're going to look at the charge, God's charge. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came through the prophet, to the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, who's the governor of Judah, and Joshua, who's the high priest. Now, I want you to think about this. What Haggai did was, Haggai's a prophet. He's approaching the king and the high priest. Why? Because in ancient times, the king represented the people. To speak to the king is to speak to the people. The king represented the nation. The king represented the laws. And the high priest represented the people. Haggai was bringing a charge through the political and religious channels, the highest political and religious channels. He was bringing a charge to the whole of God's people. And the message was powerful and it was forceful. How do we know that? Well, one, because in verse 12, it said that the people obeyed the voice of the Lord and they were afraid. But Two, if you look at verses 1, 2, and 3, you see it in two phrases. I'm going to explain to you. Typically, when God sends a prophet, when God sends a prophet, he would say, the prophet would say, the word of the Lord came to me. Or the book would say, the word of the Lord came to this prophet. But verse 1 of this chapter, Haggai 1, in the Hebrew it actually begins, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, like a weapon. That's battle language. Haggai came as if he was armed. Haggai came as he was leading an army. He was armed with God's message. And look at how God is described. He's, you see it in English. It says, the Lord Almighty, but often translated as the Lord of hosts. The host of what? This is war language. The host of armies. In other words, God, God's word is coming by the hand of Haggai with all the fury of God, with all the might and power. This is nuclear He's coming with all the might of his armies, and the message is coming like a blade. What is the message? Verse 2. These people. He doesn't even say my people. He says these people. There's a distance. You see that? 
These people say the time has not come for the Lord's house to be built. Verse 4, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? He wasn't talking about one time or two times. God is very patient. It was 22 years that it took for the temple to be complete. 22 years after they returned. And the second temple apparently underwhelmed the first one so bad. The second temple underwhelmed the glory of the first one so bad that when one of the elders who was alive during the time of the first temple saw the glory of the second temple, they said that when they revealed everything, he wept. When God's people are geographically distant from God, you know, when the temple was destroyed, they longed for his presence. In fact, they were filled with sorrow. They were in a foreign land, exiled. They weren't even citizens of that land. They were apart from home. They were longing for the temple, longing to be home. And now they're finally back geographically home, but they were still far from God. They were still distant from God. But isn't God everywhere? We're not talking about geography. We're talking about relational distance. What's the charge? Rather than making your relationship with God the number one priority of your life, what became more important was building and accumulating and, and building that life, securing your life. They started to work on the temple when they returned. But their relationship with God was pushed to the periphery. Other things became more important. And now after years, God says, this house remains a ruin while you are building your house, while you are focusing on your house. Our love is a mess. Oh, but you don't care, do you? Because you're looking for your own loves. Our relationship is a mess. It's broken. But you're just focusing on your other relationships. You want that home. You want that, that family. Paneled homes, he says. Why the emphasis on paneled homes? Because they were costly. In an agrarian society, paneled homes were costly. They were extra they were only for the look. These people were distracted. They were caring more about optics. They were trying to build their own sense of value, their own sense of worth without God, and they were working harder to get that. They were paying a price for this. This, this was the violation of God's covenant, of his relationship with his people, his law. Not making your relationship with God the number one priority in your life. Now think about this. Ancient leaders, they would recount the laws. They would pass the law down from one leader to the next. Moses to Joshua and onward. They would recount the law and they would say the same thing. Obey this law. You better tie it around yourself. You better hold on tight and you will be blessed. But if you violate this law, if, your relationship, if God is not the number one priority in your life, 
And as a result, you abandon his word. And as a result, your culture becomes exploitative and oppressive. There will be disaster. There will be disaster. You were not designed to do that. But if you start to live against the way you were designed, your heart, everything will start to fall apart. And so in verses 9 to 11, God says, I ruined your harvest. I'm the one who makes it work. I'm the one who blows the wind. I'm the one who brings the rain. I ruined your harvest. I brought down the drought. It's a picture. It's a snapshot of what our relationship is like. It is dry. It is fruitless. It is dying. There's disaster. Now think about this. These people have not committed any gross crimes. It doesn't say anywhere in this book that they were overtly committing some act of defiance against God. They were good people. They were worshipful people. They were religious people. Where is the wickedness? Where is the exploitation? Who's the one being exploited here? Where is the injustice? God says, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in these paneled homes while this house, my house, remains a ruin. You know what he's saying? In other words, I'm the one that's being exploited. Oh, before you used to come to me for things. When you pray, you pray for lots of stuff. You pray for a lot of things. You want that relationship. You want that family. You need that food. You need to survive. You need health. You want to stay young. You need the strength and the energy. How many times have you prayed, give me strength, give me energy? God, please be faithful. God, let me know your faithfulness. Let me experience your presence. And he says, you know what I've done? I fed you. I protected you. When you were wandering around in that desert, I sent you water. I gave you meat in the desert. I gave you food when you lacked, you lacked nothing. You had all the security and protection under me. I gave you everything that you needed, and I gave you rest. You always had enough when you were homeless and when you were vulnerable and when you were wandering, I was your shepherd. But verse five, he says, give careful thought. Examine. I want you to think. I want you to reflect right now about where you are. There's this heavy emotion. You know why? You know how you know that? Because in verses four and nine, he says, my house is ruined Two times he mentions that. Two times he mentions in verses 4 and 9, you are living in your paneled houses while, and you're busy with your own house. Whenever you see those things mentioned in doublets like that, in the Hebrew language, it represents heavy, deep, intense emotion. God is not saying this like he's about to bring down the hammer. He's weeping. He's grieving like he's lost his kids. Now, this is very important. You know what that means? It's actually kind of scary. That means that right now you could be in the church. Right now you can say you love the church. Right now you can say you love Jesus. But, and you can hear this in the unfiltered language. You can hear this in your, you can see this in your unfiltered daydreams, in your unfiltered imaginations. 
with what you really want, if what you really pursue, if what you're really spending your energy on, if what you really love are your friends and making friends, a cure for your loneliness, your significant relationships around you, building that career and accumulating wealth, and your relationship with Jesus, your relationship with the church is secondary? I mean, it's not that you don't believe in God. That's not the issue here. These people were religious people. They knew of the existence of God. They believed God. It's just that God has been pushed to the side. God has been pushed to the periphery. He's at least number two. And for most of us here, he ain't even number two. This means, and this is the scary part, this means you can obey and serve and do good and stay away from all the bad stuff and yet still be further from God than when you first came to him and came to know him. In fact, the reason why you obey and do good is so that you can kind of keep God at bay. I'm good. I feel renewed. I'm repenting. But that gives you the runway to pursue what you really want, that paneled home. That's what really gives you a sense of worth. That's what really saves you. And when you do that, God is being pushed off his throne. It's not about the act of sin. It's not about some gross crime. It's about what you really desire that sits on the throne of your heart because that thing is what controls you. That's what you really worship. Doesn't matter what you sing. We all sing lies. It's what really controls you. It's what you really think about, what you invest your time and money and thinking on, your plans. That is your real God, and this is the betrayal. This is what it means to break God's law. But the thing is, why is God weeping? Because you're not just breaking his law. You're breaking his heart. You're breaking his heart. Why does Haggai approach Zerubbabel, the king? He's like the king. You know why? Because the greatest king that Israel had ever known was David. You know what David said? I am living in my palace while my God is living in a tent. So what David did was he set up and prepared. He says, we're going to build a temple, a monumental temple where God can dwell with us. David did not want God on the periphery. David wanted God to be downtown, central in his life. What is downtown and central in yours? We invest, <clears throat> I mean, if you think about all the things nowadays because of technology we do, we, we set our 401k contributions on auto. All of your bills are on auto. All of the things that you pursue, now you just get out there, you just click a button and it's yours. We dedicate lots of time, lots of money, lots of energy, our best hours into the things that we treasure most. Don't we? Don't we do that? We take our best hours and we put it into the things that we value most. 
These are the things that we say, oh, we need this. Why? Because we're building. We want to place our best hours into the best work so that we can place our kids into the best programs, to live in the best homes, in the best neighborhood, to eat in the best places. Who gave you your job? Who gave you your job? Who gave you those clothes that you're wearing? Who gave you that home? Who gave you your spouse? Who gave you your boyfriends and girlfriends? Who gave you all the things that you own? That's the charge. What are the implications? Look, when the Bible teaches, when the Bible always teaches about idols, the way the Bible uses idolatry language, an idol is anything that you place before God, right? The Bible always teaches that these idols will always lead you to ruin. That's the implication. So when God's house is in ruins, right, you see verse 911, uh, uh, when God promises ruin and drought, he's saying, you can't have a truly fruitful life apart from me. Apart from making me the number one priority, making me king in your life. You cannot have a fruitful life. Anybody here who thinks that they can have a fruitful life apart from God, apart from the way you've been designed to serve God, you see, that's the lie. We always talk about, well, I hear these lies. They're always speaking to me, you know, you're worthless. You're not valuable. I'll tell you the ultimate lie. The ultimate lie is you making the choice, thinking that you can have a life apart from God. That's where it all starts. You, gotta, you forget about that lie. So when God's house is in ruins, no one's going to take you to jail. No one's going to punish you. But there are natural consequences. When a planet you know, this planet is revolving at an astronomical pace around the sun. But if it falls out of orbit, everyone dies. The planet just breaks up. We don't realize we're just on a ball of rock that's hurtling through space. What is it? You know, some crazy... Some crazy pace. If it falls out of orbit, there are consequences, there are implications, and it's natural. It will wreak havoc everywhere, and it's natural. It is not an unnatural consequence. It is, not, it is a natural consequence. God doesn't say, you know, I'm homeless, so now I'm going to pay you back. You're going to experience poverty and joy. That's how we oftentimes read this text. What he's saying, verse 5, what does he say? I want you to think carefully about the decisions you're making. No disaster has come. He just says, he's appealing to us. I mean, God is incredible. Look at the faithfulness of God. Look at the patience of God. He says, I want you to think about this. Because what you're doing is you're going you're to start rolling back. There's a corrosion that's setting in your life, and you're going to start rolling back and in that rollback, there are going to be natural consequences to living a life apart from the way you've been designed. I want you to think about what you're doing. 
You planted, you eat, you drink, you put on clothes, you earn wages. These are everyday necessities. No one's saying that those things are bad. This is an agrarian society. Planting is your life. Eating and drinking and wearing clothes, you need that to live. But God says, doing any of these things apart from me, you will never feel like you have enough. You will never feel like you have enough. Even though God has been faithful when you had nothing, there was no ground to till because you were in the desert. Even when you had nothing, God provided, he was faithful, and yet you stopped trusting me. Why? The Bible says that at the heart of sin is a very deep-seated distrust of God that prevents us from really, really placing God as a priority in our lives. We've taken matters into our own hands. Sin begins with a distrust that God does not have my best interests in mind. God does not have the best in mind for me when we are his children. Time and time again, he has proven his faithfulness throughout the history of the Old Testament into the New Testament. We see time and think about just your lives as if that wasn't enough. Look at your life. Has not God been faithful over and over and over and over again. But in Genesis chapter three, we see this way in the beginning. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, paradise. They had the presence of God. They had the access. They had intimacy. They had the love of God. God literally walked with them in the cool of the day. They had utter access to God. But when Eve looked at that fruit from the tree that God had forbidden her to take from, when Eve looked at that fruit, Genesis chapter 3 says it was pleasing to the eye and useful, seemed useful. And she started, so what, the reason why they're saying that is because it's the language's way of telling you what's going on in Eve's mind is, why would God withhold this good thing from me? I mean, it's pleasing to me. It looks good. It looks useful. Why would God withhold it from me? And that's what led to the rebellion. That's what sin is. And God, in Genesis chapter 3, said, because you did this, now everything's going to go bad. Now everything's going to go bad. The ground is now cursed, and you will work and work and work. You will plant. You will eat, he says. But the ground won't produce anymore. For the first time in your life, you're going to experience what failure is like. There are going to be diseases. There's going to be brokenness in the family. All your life, you're going to want to rest, and you're never going to be able to rest until the day you die. Wow, that's the curse. And so here in verse 5 in this passage, distrusting God is not new. It is part of our spiritual DNA. That's why Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. The only way to get out of it is you need new DNA. You're not going to go to jail for a lot of these things, but each time you defy God, there's going to be a rollback to the curse, a rollback. 
And you know what that does when you roll back? You start to see the natural consequences of, of bad decisions, natural consequences of making decisions apart from God, even if they seem like good decisions, natural consequences of being apart from God. What happens is you roll back into the curse. Things are never going to feel like they're enough. And what sets in is you're just going to start working harder to get it and working harder to get it and working harder to get it. And anxiety is going to set in and depression is going to set in when things don't work out and anger is going to set in because somebody's got to be blamed for this and jealousy is going to get start setting in because why do they have it and you're never going to feel like you have enough you're going to plant you're going to eat you're going to drink you're going to clothe yourself you're going to earn it's never going to be enough for you it's going to be like putting money in a purse with holes in it you know why because sin has left a god-sized hole in your heart and nothing will ever fill it but we try to fill it don't we You've left power, power, looking for power. You've left love, looking for love. That's the root of all sin. That's the root of every pathology, spiritual pathology in our lives. That's the corrosion of the soul, and it, it will infect every part of your life, every part of your life for all time until one day if you put your life and your soul into that house, if you put your life and soul into that neighborhood, if you put your life and soul into that pedigree, if you lose that house, if your pedigree gets stained, if you put your life and soul into that career and you lose your career or you lose your job, something diverts you. If you put your life into your children and your children go bad, if you put your life into any relationship and you lose that relationship, if you put your life into your beauty and your vanity and one day you're going to get older, if you put your life into your health until the day you start getting sick, until one day... You just keep going, the rollback, until one day, life is just going to burst you into the ultimate displacement where God will never be in your life ever again. He will be completely separated from you, and you're actually getting what you've been asking for all your life. That's why nobody in hell will ever complain about being there. They actually got what they wanted. At the end of this passage in verse 12, the people obey the voice of the Lord. People feared the Lord. Haggai came, he came armed and ready, right? But he didn't come to smite the people. The people didn't witness God's almighty power and strength. They heard his promise. What did they hear? That's a third point. Notice God didn't say, I'm with you I am with you because you obeyed me. Fact is, the temple didn't finish for another four years. Lots of setbacks. So the promise didn't come because of the obedience. The obedience was a response to God's promise. In fact, if you read that text, it says that God stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel or the high priest. And the promise is what? My presence my presence is the promise. I am with you is the promise. Look at the faithfulness of God. Look at the patience of God. Look at the grace of God. At the very hint of repentance, he says, I'm here. That is a father who loves his children. 
That is a God who loves his people. Verse 8, God says, I want you to go. I want you to get that wood, bring down the mountain, and build this house. But you know, the temple, the second temple, as I said before, it was shabby compared to the first temple. And, And it was torn down again about hundreds of years later. So what happened to the promise? How did God's promise get fulfilled? In John chapter 1, the author writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt in in the Greek is literally the word for tabernacle, which is another way of saying temple. Jesus Christ, the Word of God, he was with God, he was God, templed among us. The other temples destroyed But Jesus Christ is the true temple, the ultimate temple to which all other temples point. And through him, what he's saying is we can have access to God. But then in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. You know what he's saying? I'm homeless. I'm headed towards ruin. Later in the gospel, according to John, Jesus says, tear down this temple and I will build it again in three days. And the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they came to him and said, it took 46 years to build this temple. You're going to build it again in three days? But the temple that he had spoken of was his body. That's what John writes. But the temple that he had spoken of was his body. What does that mean? Jesus is saying, I am the true temple, the ultimate temple, the true access point to God. God said to the people, I want you to carry the wood and bring it down the mountain. Jesus Christ himself carried the wood, took on the cross, and brought it up a mountain called Calvary. And there he built on that mountain an eternal temple that can never be shaken, that can never be taken down. On the cross, Jesus Christ, the most obedient person that ever lived, God was his ultimate priority. God was central to his life. He had ultimate access to God. He, and he says, I am in the Father. The Father is in me. I love the Father. The Father loves me. We are one. And yet on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken me. In other words, what he's saying in that moment is, I'm experiencing the cosmic homelessness. And I am utterly, totally ruined. God said to the people, I am with you. It was a promise that endures. Why? You know why? Because Jesus Christ, the ultimate temple, the ultimate high priest, the ultimate king, and the ultimate Haggai, the ultimate prophet, is on the cross. And what does he say? You are not with me. The one person who deserved access to God says that gate has been closed so that it will be forever and ultimately open. To you. Jesus Christ is saying, my life has been thrown out of orbit and now I am suffering the consequences of separation from God. I'm in hell, completely apart. I am displaced. God has now pushed me into the periphery. <clears throat> Why? Because on the cross in that moment, the wrath of God was pouring out on Christ as a penalty for our sins. And he died. God says, 
Oh, you plant, you work, you eat, you drink, you wear clothes, and it's never enough. Jesus Christ is laboring on the cross. Jesus Christ is hungering and thirsting on the cross. Jesus Christ is naked on the cross, clothed, unclothed on the cross. Look at him groaning and toiling and sweating and bleeding and dying. You know why? Because it's a life-binding, love-binding promise that he made to his people, faithful to the end. And so through his death, Now he knows God will be present with us forever. Jesus experienced the ultimate curse, a separation from God so that we would have the promise that God will be with us forever. Jesus experienced the ultimate hunger on the cross, cosmic hunger, God thirsting and hungering for God so that we could be satisfied in his presence. Jesus Christ on the cross said, I am thirsty. I thirst so that our thirst could be quenched. Jesus Christ was stripped naked so that we could be clothed then in his righteousness. You don't need, you don't need to be anxious. You don't need to be desperate. You don't need to be desperately lonely. You don't need to worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to Drink what you're going to wear. Those aren't my words. Jesus Christ said that to his own people. You know why? Because he would clothe you. He would hunger and thirst for you so that you would be filled forever. And he worked and he labored and he died so that we can rest and live eternally in him. Jesus Christ, who always held God as his priority. And as a result, we became his love. We became his priority. Whenever you look to the cross, you know there is proof that God is present for you and with you and loves you. To the degree that you trust that, to the degree that you believe that, then Jesus Christ will become your priority. And you will loosen your grip on the need for those paneled homes in your life because he is your temple. He is your access. We couldn't build it, so he came and built it. He finished it. On the cross, he said, that's paid, it's finished. Today, the word of God has come to you. How will you respond? I want you to evaluate and I want you to consider, and I want you to think, and I want you to come back and respond. Let's pray.